0: I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 30th, 2019. Coming up, an interview with Joshua Goldstein, Stanford economist. His new book, A Bright Future, describes a path to rapid decarbonizing and reversing climate change. Again, with a look at some of the recent news in science. Malaria is probably the most common life-threatening disease in the world today. In 2017, there were an estimated 219 million cases of malaria in 87 countries and 435,000 deaths. Sub-Saharan Africa is disproportionately targeted with the global malaria burden. In 2017, the region was home to 92% of malaria cases and 93% of the malaria deaths. The disease is caused by parasites that are carried by infected female Anopheles mosquitoes. Prevention is currently the best deterrent, relying on mosquito control via insecticides and treated bed nets. Antimalarial medicines can also be used to prevent malaria. Travelers frequently use these drugs. Once infected, there are several drugs that can treat malaria, but both insecticides and drugs are losing their effectiveness due to the development of resistance in the mosquito and the parasite. For these reasons, scientists have been working on an anti-malarial vaccine for decades. But unlike viruses or bacteria that are susceptible to vaccines, the malarial parasite changes shape in the human body, which makes it hard for the antibodies triggered by the vaccine to recognize the parasite. Recently, scientists reported testing a new vaccine that uses a combination of immune system triggers. Clinics began giving the vaccine, called RTS-S, to children in Malawi earlier this month, Ghana and Kenya are next in this World Health Organization effort that could immunize more than a million children by 2023. Although other, possibly more effective vaccines are in the pipeline, the rts S vaccine is the current best strategy for reducing malarial deaths in Africa. But the vaccine is effective in only 40% of recipients, and it must be given as four injections over 18 months, a real problem in poor countries where access to cl- clinics is limited. Good results in this trial may spur additional funding for development of better vaccines, currently funded mainly by private entities such as Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This report was published last week in the journal Nature. Does life seem to be moving faster these days? You just can't catch up on your to-do list? Well, some astronomers feel the same way about the expansion of the universe. New measurements from NASA's Hubble Space Telescope indicate that the universe is expanding about 9% faster than expected based on more distant measurements. The Hubble measurements were of stars in a nearby galaxy, providing one of the first yardsticks or rungs in what is often called the cosmological distance ladder. A change in the distance of any of the first few rungs will affect the estimated distances of more distant objects. All the distance measurements have become more and more precise, and there is a growing discrepancy between this method and other methods using observations of the early universe's expansion made by the European Space Agency's Planck satellite. The measurements made with Planck map a remnant afterglow from the Big Bang known as the Cosmic Microwave Background, which helps scientists to predict how the early universe would likely have evolved into the expansion rate astronomers can measure today. According to Nobel laureate Adam Rice from Johns Hopkins University and lead author on the paper, the two experiments are measuring something fundamentally different. One is a measurement of how fast the universe is expanding today as we see it. The other is a prediction based on the physics of the early universe and on measurements of how fast it ought to be expanding. He says that the growing disparity between the two types of measurements suggests that new physics may be needed to better understand the cosmos. This research will appear in the Astrophysical Journal. Finally, for the local calendar, mark yours for an upcoming CU Memory Café. These events provide socialization, education, and inspiration for people living with memory loss and also their care partners. This month's café features speaker Leah Quiller, a board-certified neurological music therapist, who will describe therapeutic healing qualities of music. The café takes place Sunday, May 12th, at the CU Henderson Museum. See the museum website for details and location. In their book, A Bright Future, Joshua Goldstein and co-author Stefan Kvist describe how nuclear energy can replace fossil fuels. A new generation of nuclear plants reduces the amount of waste produced and completely eliminates carbon dioxide. In Sweden, France, and Ontario, Canada, these plants have allowed those countries to eliminate their reliance on fossil fuels. Welcome to the program, Joshua, and congratulations on your new book on the role of nuclear energy in mitigating climate change. And I have to admit that as somebody whose opinions on nuclear energy were shaped during the 70s, this book was kind of a revelation to me. So um, let's start off by talking about exactly what climate change is, and then we can launch into how nuclear power can really help us dealing with that problem.
1: Okay, great. Thanks for having me on. Um, Climate change is the uh, change in the world's climate caused by the emission of carbon dioxide in particular and other related gases that are warming up the world but in kind of uneven ways and leading to all kinds of freakish weather and the potential for catastrophic tipping points like very large sea level rise or a new ice age or this kind of thing. And to get on top of it, we need to drastically cut the use of fossil fuels really quickly so we've had several big new climate reports from the scientists telling us that we want to stay within one and a half degrees centigrade of warming globally and to do that we should be off of fossil fuels within about 30 years from now so that's a massive undertaking and unlike anything we've done before um, but in fact some countries have done that to decarbonize their electricity systems really quickly Um, And those would be places like Sweden, France, Ontario. And they did it by a combination of renewables, uh, hydroelectricity in the case of Sweden, and then a rapid build-out of nuclear power. So that's been the only proven way that we can add clean energy to the grid fast enough to get on top of the climate change problem.
0: Yeah, your story of what happened in Sweden was quite remarkable. Maybe you could uh, give a synopsis of that story.
1: Sure. So Sweden in the 1970s was using mostly hydroelectricity, and the environmental groups demanded that they stop damming up rivers because of the damage to the environment. And that left a choice of importing fossil fuels, which was uh, problematic in the 1970s because of the oil embargoes, or using Uh, nuclear energy, which is what they decided to do. So they just very rapidly built out um, 10 or 12 nuclear reactors, exported a couple to Finland even, and um, decarbonized the grid within less than 20 years. Then they put in a carbon tax, which is to say taxing fossil fuel use, things that put carbon into the atmosphere. And that led to further changes across the economy and they've just gone much further in cutting carbon emissions than almost anybody in the world. And they did it very quickly and quite a while ago, not because of climate change, which wasn't even a concern back then, but it's a great model now for how you can do that.
0: And that leads me into a topic that I think a lot of people don't consider, which is that there's a lot of problems with getting our power from renewables. And you spent a lot of time talking in the book about these problems. And I think it's valuable to recapitulate some of them. Since the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow, and most importantly, we don't have really good storage methods, we can't rely on renewables. So in places like my hometown of Boulder, You know, there's a lot of enthusiasm for switching over to renewables, like we want to be on all renewables by 2030. But I think your discussion of renewables makes it clear why that might not be a realistic goal. So could you discuss some of those problems in more detail?
1: Yeah, so renewables are great. They're clean energy. Um, The costs are coming down really rapidly. I have solar cells up on top of my house. Um, there's, There's nothing bad about them, especially early on when they're not a very big part of the grid. And the problem is, as they get to be a bigger part of the grid, then you have to adapt to the fact that the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow. Um, My co-author, Stefan Quist, did an analysis of Europe that showed continent-wide there was a whole week out of the year when neither solar nor wind really produced. So what are you going to do during that week? What do you do during the cold winter in Boulder when the sun's not shining? There's no way, practical way, to store energy other than very short term. You can store it for 15 minutes. You can put it in my electric car. Um, but for the big amounts of energy, grid scale, and for well, weeks at a time or seasons at a time, there's no way to store it. So 100% renewables is not practical. And when Boulder says 100% renewables by 2030, that's not actually 100% renewables. That's net 100%. In other words, producing extra energy with renewables when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, and then taking energy off the grid when they're not. And that energy on the grid in Colorado is mostly coal. Coal is the dirtiest of the fossil fuels responsible for the most carbon emissions and also the deadliest, killing hundreds of thousands of people in the world from uh, particulate matter that's emitted when coal is burned and gives people cancer and em- emphysema and other diseases. So it's it's not 100% renewables. It's a renewables plus coal system, and it's not a good model for other places to follow because if the whole of Colorado tried to do that, it wouldn't work because you wouldn't have the coal to rely on when the renewables weren't producing so uh, renewables are great, but if you combine them with nuclear power, then nuclear could be doing those things that coal is doing now, filling in for the renewables and um, providing that kind of base power round the clock, any kind of weather, day and night, all seasons, and then using the cheap renewables to supplement that, but not trying to do 100%.
0: And I want to come back to this issue of the waste um, toxicity associated with coal. But before I do that, I do have a question uh, relating to um, the feasibility of nuclear, because as you well know and describe in the book, um, in this country particularly, there's a lot of regulatory um, inertia around Permitting nuclear plants. And there's a couple of guys at the university here in Boulder whom we interviewed on this show a couple years ago. And they came up with a model showing that if the electric grid was completely revamped in this country so that it was a high voltage DC grid, then it would be feasible to run the country almost 95% off of renewables because at some point in the country, there would always be wind or sun. And, of course, that sounds like a daunting prospect, redoing the entire grid. But given the uh, resistance to nuclear, that's also a daunting prospect to nuclearize the country. What, do you have an opinion on that?
1: Well, the, the D.C. grid idea, it's been proposed for the whole world. It would cost something like $50 trillion. And for that amount, using nuclear power, you could decarbonize the entire world. That 50000000000000 trillion doesn't even include the cost of producing electricity. And as I just said, for Europe, a whole week at a time when neither the sun nor the wind is uh, producing, the same is going to be true of the United States. like, yeah, most of the time that's good, but when it's not good, what do you do? Do you turn off all the lights and have blackouts? Or more likely you keep an entire fossil fuel energy system in reserve? To produce during that one week, and that's very expensive. Um, so it's it's not a practical way to go about it.
0: Right? Yeah. So let's come back to that issue of um, of waste because you have some pretty remarkable data in your book about the sheer volume. And you do a great job of comparing the risks associated with nuclear waste and fossil fuel waste. So let's talk about that. Go, start with coal. What are what are the waste products and how toxic are they?
1: So coal produces a lot of waste. First of all, the sheer volumes of both the inputs and the outputs in coal versus nuclear power. Um, Nuclear is about a million times more concentrated. And so a uh, pound of coal, if you turned it into electricity, as you do in Colorado now, would, heat, would um, power your house with electricity for about one hour. But a pound of nuclear fuel, same amount, would power your home for two years if you turn that into electricity. So it's just a lot vastly more concentrated. And that's why it has a smaller environmental Im- impact you know, than um, any of these other fuel sources. And that's also why the waste stream is much smaller. So for coal, you produce um, just thousands of rail cars worth from one coal plant of uh, coal waste. And it's it's got arsenic, um, lead, mercury, all kinds of toxics in it. And we just dump it in sludge behind dams. Once in a while, the dams break and the sludge runs towns and kills people. Other times it leaches into the groundwater. So it's not handled carefully at all. And this is true of other industrial waste. We just dump them down in the ground. Now, nuclear waste um, is also potentially toxic, but gets less so over time. And um, if you lived your whole lifetime on nuclear electricity as an American you would produce waste that would fit in a soda can. So, that again, it's so concentrated. Um, and all the American nuclear waste combined from 60 years of power production, and that's a source that's producing 20% of our electricity, would fit on a football field stacked 20 feet high. So it's just literally a small problem. Um, what we do with it now is to cool it off in kind of swimming pools in the power plant for a couple of years, and it gets a lot less Um, radioactive. And then what's left, we put into concrete casks about 18 feet high cylinders and put them out behind the plant. A large nuclear power plant will produce about two of those per year. They sit out there. They haven't had any problems. They're certified for about a century of safety. And that's the period in which we need to be solving climate change. And then, um, you know, long term, we can either burn that radioactive um, spent fuel in future reactors, which are now being designed, or we can bury it deep underground, as Finland is starting to do, and just leave it there. But it's a a small problem and very misunderstood.
0: Right, and it's interesting to me that people are so emotionally overwrought about the dangers of this nuclear waste from fuel plants, or, sorry, from power plants, um, whereas there have been virtually no injuries associated with these, maybe a few from Fukushima, um, whereas the health risks associated with coal or oil production are well-documented, and they're pretty staggeringly high.
1: Yeah. On a, a per kilowatt hour generated basis, nuclear power is 400 times safer than coal and actually the safest of all the the fuels. But I think what happens psychologically is people get cross-wired uh, in our brains between similar things, and specifically nuclear weapons, especially those of us that are old enough to have grown up in the Cold War and put our heads under the desks to prepare for nuclear war and all that. That's pretty traumatic. And then you know, anything with the word nuclear attached to it is associated with that, even though it's not the same thing, and a power plant cannot physically blow up like a nuclear bomb or any of that. Um, And then also the nuclear waste, the military has produced a lot of nuclear waste, including at Rocky Flats there in Colorado, which has been handled terribly and just left behind horrible messes, which is the way the military tends to deal with environmental (laughs) stuff. Um, And so people confuse that also with um, civilian nuclear power plants that have not handled it that way.
0: And you also do a great job of introducing the newer designs, I think you call them fourth generation nuclear reactors, that produce less waste and actually use some waste from either pre-existing plants or their own waste. They recycle the waste to get more energy out of it. So can you, that was all new to me. So can you describe just how these newer generation reactors work?
1: Yeah, there's about 50 startups uh, that are now developing these designs and uh, maybe a half dozen of them that are pretty prominent and well-funded. I I think some about a billion dollars has gone into investing in these companies. And what they're trying to design is reactors that are um, smaller scale, usually, that are simpler, safer... And above all, more affordable because that's the big obstacle now. Is we've lost the ability to big build these big nuclear plants. It's billions of dollars up front, and hard to get the financing for it. And then it gets into these construction projects, which in the United States, anyway, seem to always go way over budget, and and the nuclear plants included in that. So the idea is to build smaller reactors and do them centrally in factories or shipyards. Um, A number of them use what's called a molten salt reactor in which the fuel is actually, rather than in solid little um, pellets of some kind in the reactor there, it's part of a fluid that's moving around and that's inherently extremely safe because in the event of a power outage, the kind of thing that happened at Fukushima, an epic natural disaster, the fuel will just drain out and stop the reaction. So, you know, it can't melt down. And I think that may help to put the public's mind at ease, even though our existing designs have been extremely safe. People still um, don't trust them and may prefer something even better.
0: I find it ironic that there's a fair amount of research in this country on new design, and some of it even funded by the Bill Gates Foundation, but a lot of those designs are now being exported to other countries, like China, for instance.
1: Well, it's not the Bill Gates Foundation, but it's his company. Oh, okay. Um, called, yeah, called TerraPower, and they uh, found the regulatory system in the United States was not favorable, and decided to build in China. Now, just recently, the U.S.-China trade dispute has led to a decision by TerraPower that they can't build it in China, and they're looking for a new place which might be coming back to the United States, it might be Canada, or maybe someplace like South Korea, which is very good at building nuclear reactors.
0: Right, Um, and India also. Another
1: American, yeah. India's building their own, but the American companies like Thorcon is one of these molten salt companies, and they're going to try to uh, get Indonesia as their big customer, um, because Indonesia is, very hungry for energy and not um, over hyper regulated the way the United States is these days. Right. And there the- is a move yeah, there's a move in Congress now um, to adapt our regulatory system for these new kinds of reactors. Right now it's been hard for them to to get approval from the government. It's like a billion dollar proposition and years of work with no assurance that you'll even get approval for a new design. And there's an effort um, which has bipartisan support in Congress to um, speed up that process and, and support some of these new companies.
0: So since you have a background in policy, what do you think is going to happen with that? Do you Are you optimistic about that?
1: I'm pretty optimistic about the, the new reactor designs in the United States um, because it's an unusual exception to the bipartisan, you know, standoff and gridlock that we're experiencing so much of these days. Uh, the, the new clean energy has Republican support and Democratic support. The new bill just passed Congress with big majorities from both parties and, and the president signed it. So that is moving forward pretty well. What I'd like to see is more of a national push For somebody to say, we need an Apollo program type of focus to really find a few of these designs that are the most workable, most affordable, and then build them out at scale pretty rapidly. Right, Um, because we do need that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so maybe in the next administration we'll get that Apollo-like program. Um, and That's uh, what I'm hoping yes, for. Yes, yes. But then in <laughs>
1: China, China's also very important in the climate picture, and they could build the existing designs. They're much better at these big concrete laying kind of infrastructure projects, and they could build out a lot of reactors quickly and get coal off their grid, which would be the single first most important step in addressing climate change.
0: Right, and some, that's something we absolutely have to take on sooner rather than later. And unfortunately, we're out of time, Joshua. We'll have to leave it there. But I will link to your book website on our show website. Thank you so much for talking this morning.
1: Great. Nice to be with you.
0: That was author and economist Joshua Goldstein explaining the benefits of nuclear energy in a rapidly warming world. New technology has reduced the amount and hazard of nuclear waste while completely eliminating carbon dioxide, a necessity in a world where renewables currently provide less than 5% of our energy and carbon dioxide is our major global threat. That's all for this edition of How on Earth? Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Claude Debussy. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.